I'm here with Katie Gerwitz. I guess I'm not actually here with you since you're in Colorado, but I am pleased to get to discuss a few things with you since you are a subject matter expert in a number of areas that I am aspiring to improve, such as teaching and learning best practices. But you've also had a pretty diverse career within education. And I also want to pick your brain a little bit about some of the topics that my students and prospective alumni are going to be encountering when they try to move out into the workforce. Maybe they need to move cities for a job, those sorts of things. So if you don't mind, just tell everyone who you are. Yeah, thanks, Dietrich. I appreciate you having me today. It's always good to spend some time with you. And uh, but yeah, just a little bit of my background. So I, I got my undergrad at University of Missouri, St. Louis. So kind of the uh, Mizzou of St. Louis for those who are big football, college football fans. And I got my undergrad in middle school education and focused, uh, really wanted to focus on that middle school level and got certified uh, to teach though through pre-calculus. So I wanted to keep my options open, but I really love those middle school students. And I, I taught middle school for about two years. And one of them was in uh, a suburb of St. Louis, then moved down to New Orleans uh, for my husband's career. Uh, he was getting his graduate degree at Tulane University. So I taught for a year in middle school education in New Orleans and then moved into high school. Uh, I, I got a position at a private high school loved it. It was really fun. I thought I didn't think I'd like high school teaching, but I did. I actually spent the next uh, seven years. So I, I taught for a total of 10 years. So I taught seven years in high school private education in New Orleans. And during that time, the last five of my 10 years of teaching, I was getting my graduate degree at University of New Orleans, and I was getting it in curriculum and instruction. The goal from that was to move into corporate training and corporate education. Uh, you know, I, I saw I, I saw a need for me to, to have something that was a little bit different than being the subject matter expert, but instead helping subject matter experts be better at teaching. I noticed that, especially in math, I, since that is the subject matter that I taught, that a lot of people are good at math, but just not good at teaching math. Wait, a and, lot of people are good at math? I'm going to call garbage on that. <laughs> math is the most complex subject known to man, along with the bow tie, which is... <laughs> This speak and say is a simple knot. One would think, right? Subject known to humanity. But okay, other than that, please continue. Well, sure. I mean, well, I, I guess maybe we should say a lot of math teachers are good uh, at math, but not good at necessarily teaching it because they know it and sometimes it's hard to explain. So that's probably why, Dietrich, of course you would say math is not an easy subject because you just didn't have good math teachers. Ooh, um, you're a future lawyer. <laughs> No personal accountability. I like it. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so, and that's kind of what drew me into corporate education. So I did a lot of research with that. My brother actually moved from teaching high school theater into corporate training for Edward Jones. So he was the first person who I chatted with as I was kind of making my choices to move into corporate, uh, the corporate culture. And he, you know, I, I, did a lot of informational interviews within that to then make that decision to move into corporate training and uh, joined a professional network 
So that was a really big, especially making that career transition. And what's funny is you find a lot of people who were former, you know, middle school, elementary school, high school educators who said, hey, I'm going to move into corporate training. I, I know a lot of them actually uh, within my professional network. And you know, uh, I, I love what I do now. It's really, really fun to work with subject matter experts and just kind of teach them how to teach their subject and to kind of get out of the weeds of what they're going through and, and get into the learner's heads, you know, thinking about what is that learner actually wanting to get out of this or what do they need to know in order to understand this that you're wanting to explain. So, so it's been quite, quite the roller coaster the past 13 years since I graduated from UMSL, but uh, it's, been, it's been a fun 13 years, 10 of them in regular education and then three of them in, in the corporate environment. There are a few things that I, I would love to unpack a little bit more as far as A, finding your passion. So working backwards, I guess, in, in your discussion, how did you discern what your passion was? So I've always had a knack for teaching, even, I mean, even when I was in middle school. So talking about middle school and math, uh, I, I had friends who, after the lesson was taught, they'd come to my table when we could work in groups and they wanted me to teach it. Uh, so it's always come natural to me to teach others. And so that's where I'm like, well, I may as well make a living out of teaching other people. It's just the difference now is, is that I'm not teaching the subject matter, I'm teaching how to teach and how to organize. Um, so it's really fun in that regard that I'm able to just move, you know, I guess like my subject matter expertise has changed in a way. It used to be math and now it's the education. So, and it's just always, it's given me a chance that day in and day out, I don't get the Sunday scaries. I don't, you know, I don't dread the work week because it's just fun. It's fun to teach others how to teach. I like that. So the Sunday scaries, that's something I'm going <laughs> to use. But I, so I think, and, and it's Super Bowl weekend. So we're, we're we, then we also have like Monday morning quarterbacking. We have a few other things that we could, we could use in there, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> but I think, uh, when you're talking about finding your passion, I think that's helpful. But I also picked up on an, uh, the importance or value to you of networking. And I think that's something that people undervalue or underutilize. And so even in discerning what possible paths you could take to reach your optimal destination or what sort of skills and education you would need to reach those goals, you relied on networks. Yes. Very much so. And, and that was actually the piece of advice that I received. So, at, you know, after I reached out to my brother to kind of learn his path, I reached out to another corporate trainer that it was a friend of my husband's and, you know, just had sat on the phone for an hour with him and he recommended um, a professional network association for talent development, which I'm a member of a board member of as well in my region. And, um, and that truly was the game changer. And I knew that networking was important. My husband did it all the time and I would just kind of go with him and meet other people, but I never did it for myself. And, and in all honesty, it never, it didn't make sense to me when I was in, you know, kind of typical education, I guess, you know, just because it was kind of, you know, you, you got your job, you stayed in your school, you called it a day. Right. And, 
I, I really wish I could have slapped my, you know, 24 year old self in that I shouldn't just network for my husband, like I should network for myself. And even within that educational realm, and it was when I was trying to make that career transition that I would reach out for informational interviews, like nobody's business, I'd reach out to random people on LinkedIn, who had a job title that I was interested in, or who worked for a company that I was interested in, just to understand, you know, what they did, and what what the company was like that they worked for just it because it, it helped me especially making that career transition because corporate training falls in many different categories there are people in universities who do it there are people who work for small companies large companies there's so many varieties that I just wanted to do my homework and I'll tell you what nobody nobody said no to me you know, so whenever I reached out, it was always one of those, oh, yeah, sure, you know, pick a time, like, you know, whatever. And when it was pre-COVID, you know, when you could actually meet in person, I'd buy them coffee, um, you know, or I'd take them out for a cocktail or something just to be able to get their two cents. But, and, and honestly, my LinkedIn network has grown because of it, because, and, and now I'm finding the reversal too. So I'm having people reach out to me saying, Hey, you know, I saw your job title. I saw where you work. I'm, you know, I'm interested in learning more. I'm learning more about you. And I see that you, Oh, you made a career change. I would love to hear about that. And so now it's almost like, I, and I'm paying it forward, you know, and, and that's what I tell anybody who reaches out to me. I did the same thing and I'm still doing it. You know, I find, and to be honest, within your field, finding that professional network that links to that is huge because I, like I said, I'm a member of Association for Talent Development, both at the national level and at the chapter level. So I'm in the Rocky Mountain chapter. I took a leadership role within that, which is really important to do if you have the capacity to do so. Um, you know, it's not only a resume builder, but it also just gives you that experience. And then you're able to meet more people because more people reach out to you because you have a leadership position within the chapter. And so I, you know, I, I cannot stress enough the value of a network because honestly, you don't land a job from applying and sending your resume in. You land a job from people you know, somebody knows somebody who knows somebody and you have that conversation and you get the job, you know? I mean, that's how I've gotten my past two jobs. When I moved into corporate training, I got my first job at World Trade Center Denver because I knew somebody who knew somebody. Um, and then I got a job at Ball Corporation because I knew somebody who knew somebody. And, you know, we had those internal conversations. Of course, you still apply for the job. You go through all of the, I mean, I can't tell you how many interviews I've gone through. But it's just, you have that better in when you've got somebody who knows you, who can say, oh yeah, I know this person's work ethic or, oh, this person has great connections. You definitely would want them as on a sales position or something like that. So the network is incredibly valuable for sure. That's, and again, you're providing a lot of value. We're going to have to do this a second time just to extract even more of different <laughs> information. But you, you mentioned your 24-year-old self, and then we go from uh, the Sunday scaries and Monday morning quarterbacking to hindsight's 2020, right? Maybe even 2015. Right. And so you, you can't go back necessarily, but you can move forward. And you mentioned this importance and some of the tangible representations of networking. I always remind the students, can you do the work? Will you do, will, will you do the work? And will you fit in are, are three of the main questions that I ask as a hiring manager. And I, like you, I've never applied for a job that I was not invited to apply for. That doesn't mean I always got the job. 
Uh, mm -hmm. But it does mean that I, I only went to jobs and I've had a pretty decent career only on jobs where somebody was able to vouch beyond my educational or, or quantifiable skills to those qualitative values of being able to engage and things like that. And I also thought it was valuable and, and very tangible to say, and, and it's funny, you're a Midwesterner, right? You're not a Southerner. You don't know about, <laughs> about hospitality, but there you are buying capitalizing and showing how a $5 latte is an investment in your future, right? And we always mm -hmm. hear people say it takes money to make money. And we think about that in compounding interest, but what about that compounding relational interest, that compounding and building on a network where you exponentially increase your impact through not only engaging, as you mentioned, sort of boldly through your, your random or, or not even random, they're focused and targeted, but possibly unknown contacts digitally, mm -hmm. and then parlaying that into something that is a relationship and then paying it forward. And so participation in local boards and being, uh, being a leader, then demonstrating those skills to a broader audience, right? So mm -hmm. in, in your yep. leadership roles in these organizations, then you're able to show peers and even hiring managers within that field of expertise, those qualitative or soft skills that you possess beyond your impressive resume. So mm -hmm. that's an awesome lesson for especially our, some of our recent graduates to say, get involved yeah. and compound that relational interest. A hundred percent. And you mentioned, you've mentioned your husband a few times and, and, and of course you, you've got this great name now. You, you probably had sort of a strange name before that. It, you know, I actually, I, I love my maiden name of Pagano and to the point that I got rid of my middle name when I got married and I put my maiden name as my middle name because what Pagano kind of is just too Pagano? strong. You know, it's just, I mean, it's, it's from the motherland of Sicily and Italy. So, uh, what Pagano Italy is it, that? <laughs> I don't know it's that. I've been to Bavaria. South. Yeah, it's very South. Bavaria is Southern. <laughs> Sicily. No, I don't know that one. But that, but that brings up a point, and in, in, so I, I think it's, it's one of the topics that I try to bring up, that work-life balance, and then sort of the cross-cultural thing. So in, in, in a discussion, maybe if you could elaborate a little bit on some of the challenges and lessons that you learned from moving to different cities, moving from Missouri to Louisiana, Louisiana to Colorado, but also then balancing a work life, and for, for many of my students, um, particularly who are sort of recent graduates that have been in the workforce for a while and have families, um, but are, or maybe are, are meeting their significant others in college, sometimes you encounter those cross-cultural things. So I would imagine mm -hmm. that an Italian and a German have some, <laughs> different, some, some differences of communication, um, maybe even more differences of communication than similarities, or, or, and, and, and even how you perceive of, of what work-life balance is. So my father's Prussian heritage, and, and I don't know what the life part is, except for the work, right? Work <laughs> comes first. It's a work-life balance, not a life-work balance. Exactly, exactly. And I don't know if, is, is that how Italians are too? They, they you know, we are. Yeah, I mean, it is, you work because, I mean, I think, I think about my great-grandparents who immigrated over here and they worked their butts off, you know, my great-grandma, and they didn't know any English. And so, you know, my great-grandma worked in a dress shop and, um, 
And so she was able, I mean, and it was with other Sicilian and Italian women. So they all spoke that language. It wasn't a big deal. Uh, my great grandfather, I can't even remember his profession, but he did a lot of traveling actually on the railroad uh, for his profession and learned English from the funnies. But it was, you know, it was one of those things that they just, they instilled being, you know, being a worker. And my dad, so my grandpa, uh, he was a produce salesman. So he'd be up before dawn, going, you know, getting the fresh produce for his truck for the day, making his deliveries. And my dad grew up on the truck with him, you know, so especially in the summer times when he wasn't in school, but even sometimes before school. Because, you know, some of the early deliveries he could do before school, or at least he'd help my grandpa load the truck in the morning or something like that. So it has always been, I mean, my dad hasn't retired. Um, and I don't, I cannot imagine him retiring. If he retired, he's an electrician. And if he retired, he'd probably just get a part-time job at like Lowe's or Home Depot or something like that. Like he, like he cannot sit still. And so that is something that is ingrained in myself. Um, and actually I feel like I'm more of a workhorse than my, my German husband, which I'm sure is like crazy for you to think, because I know you, you're a big worker yourself. So, uh, you know, he's always like, when can we retire? When can we retire? I'm like, well, you know, give it, give it some time, man, give it some time, but I wouldn't know what to do with retirement. I'd want to find a job or a consult or something, you know, like I, I, that is definitely instilled in me with, with that work, work more than life. But I do, I will say, and especially in times of COVID, it's hard when you're working remotely uh, to close your computer at five o'clock and try to, you know, make your transition home in air quotes there. But, um, and, and there are times, you know, especially because when I taught, you know, you would never stop working. You'd work evenings, you'd work weekends. In the corporate life, I do try to, you know, separate that. But there are times that I'm thinking about something at 10 o'clock at night. So I get it done because it'll make my day the next day easier. Sure. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm going back to also your, your talk about kind of the communication and, and moving, you know, and, and understanding the different cultural differences when, you know, when you're living in different cities. So, you know, I grew up born and raised in St. Louis, lived there my whole life, went to college there. Um, met my husband there who was from there. So, and, and to, to be honest, in St. Louis, it's like, you never leave. If you stayed, even, even if you go away to college, you come back and you stay in St. Louis and you have your family and you go to Ted Drew's and Cardinals games and, and all of that, you eat your toasted raviolis and, um, and you have Sunday barbecues with the family. Like that is, that's kind of what happens. And so I broke the mold with my family, my, cause my whole family's in St. Louis and I broke the mold, uh, moving to new Orleans with my husband. But, you know, that was another piece that while family is so important, uh, especially to Italians, but careers also, you know, like that's kind of where I find there can be some dissonance with Italians because we are such hard workers, but family is so important. And, you know, and you raise each other, that kind of thing. Um, and so I kind of broke the mold with that moving to New Orleans, but I did it for career reasons. You know, my husband got into Tulane. He didn't get into WashU. That was a sign, you know, and, um, and we spent nine years in New Orleans. And the nice thing was the transition wasn't too different. Both of them are Catholic cities. Both of them are where'd you go to high school kind of cities. So, you know, you kind of get that 
small town feel. Now St. Louis is much bigger than New Orleans. And that was one of the big shocks is I didn't go to high school in New Orleans. I, I understood the culture, but there were some things that I was still an outsider in and really needed to, to kind of sit back. I did a lot of observing the first couple of years uh, when I lived there just to kind of see how do people work around here? So that way I could figure out how to, how to make it happen. And, and how to build my network in New Orleans. And man, when I would have some of those kind of like big wigs, I guess you could say, you know, big New Orleans names want to befriend me. I'm like, yeah, because I know you're, you know, very powerful in this city. So I'm going to, yeah, we're going to go out for cocktails or go out for coffee or whatever. And, and, you know, just follow that lead. And so I would follow the lead of a lot of the people who you know, kind of took me under their wing. And, and that's the one thing too, is I notice a lot of people when you move to a new city, they do take you under your wing and under their wing, I should say. And, and that's, you know, one of the things when I moved to Denver. So, you know, we moved to Denver for my career. So we moved to New Orleans for my husband's and moved to Denver for mine. There wasn't a lot of corporate training opportunities in New Orleans, and I was making that career change. And also New Orleans is a small town. So it is, you know, what, uh, who's your mama? Can you make a roux? <laughs> like that type of situation where, uh, you know, if you weren't born and bred there, sometimes it's hard because you still are an outsider. Even if you, you know, move your way in and you go to the right uh, parties or the right balls or whatever, that's, you know, it's still, you're still an outsider. And, and that's something that I had to come to terms with. I love the city, but I knew that my career growth couldn't happen the way that I wanted it to if I stayed. And uh, which led me and and that's the thing too, is, you know, as you're looking for career opportunities, like you really have to prioritize what's important. You know, for me, it was career growth. For others, it's like, I want to stay close to family. So I'm going to keep applying so I can stay close to family. So you have to make those priorities. You have to have those in line before you even kind of search out for that career. So that way, you know, when you say yes to a job, you know what you're saying yes to, because that might be giving up other things. And um, I really wanted the Rocky Mountains. I love to hike. I love to bike. I love to, to uh, camp. Um, and all those things we're able to do here. I learned how to snowshoe. I was never a winter sport kind of gal, but I, I snowshoe now. But, um, and that was, you know, when, when I moved to Denver, that was another piece that I needed to really understand the culture. Uh, you know, in New Orleans, you show up late to stuff. And that's okay. Like you don't show up on time. It's actually rude to show up on time. You know, if the party starts at seven, you leave your house at seven. You don't show up at seven. But in Denver, you show up five minutes early. You know, like if you've got a coffee meeting, you better be earlier on time. Um, you, you know, in, in some ways you want to be the first person there and waiting. You'd rather be waiting for that person and be on time than be five minutes late. And so, you know, those are some things that I had learned. Um, and, but then again, you know, it's, it's interesting because when you have a meeting like that, that's one thing, but when you're going to a networking event, you don't show up, right. You show up five to 10 minutes late. So it was all of those nuances that again, I sat back for about a year and just observed and I, you know, and, uh, so that way I could 
weasel my way in and kind of be, you know, what some people could consider a native because I could spout off, you know, the bike routes that I take or, you know, the 14ers that I've climbed and all of that and, you know, kind of get that lingo. And so that's, I think, one of the biggest pieces is you you kind of have to set your ego at the door whenever you move into a new, and even, I mean, even a new company, not just a new city, but even a new company. And just kind of like, let's sit back and observe before I make suggestions, unless I'm asked, you know, if I, especially, you know, with, within a new company, if I'm asked, hey, Katie, what do you think about that? I'm going to give my opinion. I'm going to be ready for it, but I'm not going to give it. Uh, you know, the first couple of months on the job, unless I'm asked, just because I need to understand what are the politics here? What's, what's the culture like, you know? So that way I don't overstep. I don't want to be that person who's like, oh, this lady just came in wanting to change everything, you know? So, so I feel like, you know, whether it's moving cities, moving um, companies, you know, taking that time to really observe and understand that culture. And, and which is hard for an extrovert like me. I'm sure it's easy for you, Dietrich, being your introverted self. But, um, you know, that is one of my biggest pieces of advice to anybody moving, moving cities, moving companies, is really take that time to step back and observe because you don't want to set the tone like, you know, first impressions are really a big deal and you don't want to have to undo anything. So that's why I usually like to, like I said, just kind of hang back, observe, and then pick up the culture. I'm not changing who I am. I'm applying who I am to be able to mingle with that culture and, and I can make it work, you know? I think, so. I think those, are, those are some valuable points. We, we discuss in my class a lot of times where people make mistakes on those graded assessments, quizzes, tests, because rather than observing, as you say, they jump right into solving and they, mm -hmm. and then they make mistakes, right? They immediately try to list all the possible torts rather than starting with a clarifying question. Well, is this person even an employee or <laughs> is this person an independent contractor? Is this person, uh, right? So rather than starting with those uh, sort of clarifying questions or observing, as you mentioned, which is especially helpful, people have a tendency to jump right in and you're mm -hmm. right. I've had to adapt in my environments because that introversion does not mix well with students, right? Students have questions at all hours and they want to come by your office pre-COVID or have a Zoom meeting now and, mm -hmm. and it's taxing on me. So then I go to yeah. my little half acre, half acre rural house that you visited and I'm in the woods. <laughs> I'm in the city, <laughs> but I'm in the woods. And, and, and there's, you know, the Wi-Fi is not very good and the phone service isn't very good and I'm alone and I have to mm -hmm. recharge my battery. So some of that was introspection and, and identifying what you've done. You've identified that you're an expert and said, I'm not going to change who I am, but I have to adapt to the culture. I've done the same thing sort of in the reverse. Mm -hmm. But I also have found that many times it's more impactful to make recommendations when you've been asked, just like what we were talking about with the job, as opposed to just going out and applying or offering unsolicited advice that's sort of taken okay, if I'm good at it, I should get paid for it. Um, maybe not literally in monetary terms, but in the sense of if I'm, if I'm good at it and you want my opinion, you're, you're going to have to ask for it. Mm -hmm. And once I've given it, uh, it should be given due weight or I'm not going to offer it again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I found that many times my sort of reserve meeting comments are taken with more impact than the people who are regularly or, or sort of inordinately offering unsolicited advice or perspective, particularly without asking those clarifying questions or without observing, as you've said. And mm -hmm. so I think there's a certain uh, corporate power that can be derived from, from that reservedness. But I, I'm going to 
jump switch gears a little bit because I, I, I don't want to take too much of your time because we're going to have to do this again. I, I want to pick your brain a lot. Yeah. But one of the things that you mentioned with the career is sort of this progression. And I wonder if you've seen certain parallels between educating middle schoolers and then educating high schoolers and then educating people in a workplace, executives, you've educated international groups of bodies through your work with um, the, the, your, your initial hiring organization in Denver, the World Trade Organization. And so what are some of the parallels and what are some of the distinctions you think in interacting, particularly for my students who are moving into new corporate cultures or using their degree to advance, um, how do you then see some parallels in, in managing people, managing teams, managing projects, that sort of idea? Yeah. So, you know, I would say, for one, people, you know, no matter your age, people are so similar. It's just the maturity levels aren't quite there. So, you know, certain things that I would talk about with a middle schooler and try to break something down, I'm going to use those same tactics to break things down when I'm teaching an adult. But I'm not going to break it down as far when teaching an adult, but with a middle schooler, I might, you know, break it down a little bit further just because of the, you know, just the brain development of where they are, um, you know, and, and I would say too that they understanding where the learner's coming from, no matter the age, is also crucial. And especially when you're in that corporate world or, you know, I guess post um, you know, post-university education, just because you don't know where they're all coming from. You know, think about it. When you're teaching in a K-12, there are standards you have to follow, you know, whether they're state standards or, you know, federal, like national standards. So you kind of know where they are or where they should be in their education journey. At university, it's a little bit different because you've got people coming from all over from different K-12s and all of that. So you don't quite know where they are, but, you know, you kind of have to adapt and figure out, you know, when you get your group of students and you're hoping that they're somewhat all at the same level because, you know, they had a K-12 education with certain standards, et cetera. Well, take post-university education. You know, when you're in those corporate environments, People are coming from literally anywhere. Some of them didn't go to university. Some of them just have a high school degree. And some people have, you know, a doctorate degree because they stayed in university. So you have all of these different levels of education. And then you've got to teach them leadership skills or, you know, or, um, you know, especially where I'm at now, like a lot of, there's a lot of safety involved, you know, within manufacturing. So, you know, you have to teach a safety course and you've got people from all over the spectrum and in different job roles. So they're going to look at safety from many different perspectives. You know, the plant manager is going to look at safety very much differently than, you know, a technician who's in the, you know, working on the machines all the time. So it's, it's, it's kind of understanding, um, you know, whenever you're going into any type of teaching role or, um, you know, or even being the observer is, is understanding one, where the people are coming from, you know, and what their goals might be from being part of this. So let's say, you know, for a lot of different webinars that I would host when I was with the World Trade Center, again, we're reaching an international audience. And so some people have never even thought about trade. 
um, are trading their goods. And some people are, you know, like they, they've got different certificates and they're in trade compliance and they know everything about trade and they're all in the same webinar. So it's trying to also figure out how do I, you know, fit a program that's going to meet the needs of that, you know, first time learner of trade and that person who's like super, you know, well-versed with trade. And, um, and even now too, especially I do a lot of project management with different training programs that we have going on in the company that I'm working at now. And, and with that, it's also understanding, okay, maybe we need to have different levels of training because, you know, when we talk about safety, for example, I like to use that because safety is a really big, you know, key value within our company. And, and like, maybe we build this, you know, safety training and we build it for the people who are actually working on the machines and then maybe the supervisors and maybe we tier the learning to to make it work um, a little bit better and then you know when when you're on the project with the different subject matter experts you've got to find out where they're coming from as well i always do i like to do um, kind of an intake meeting and i take and i find out what what their backgrounds are. So that way I know like, okay, you, we've got some people who have never actually worked a machine. So we need somebody who's worked a machine to be able to be part of this so we can build this training because we need that perspective. And I think that's the biggest piece. And, and so I'm, you know, I've taken the disc analysis. I don't know whether you've ever taken disc before, but I'm an S on the disc, which means that I really am focused on what people are feeling and thinking and, and where their perspective is, which is incredibly crucial when you're working with other people is, you know, of course I've got my own perspective and I've got my own whatever, but when you're making something for other people, you've got to make sure one, the people who you're making, whatever it is, you know, whether I, I'm going to go back to training because that's what I do. If I'm going to make a training for a group of individuals, first of all, I need to know where they're coming from. But the people who are helping me make this training, I need to know where they're coming from and to make sure that they are in the shoes of those people taking the training. You know, I get a lot of, I call it, um, you know, death by PowerPoint, where it is just a lot of words on a PowerPoint. I'm like, how do I, this is, this is great information. How do I apply it? Because the trainee wants to know, okay, this is cool. How do I do it? What are your expectations of me and my role and how to implement this? And so that's, you know, that's another piece is to consider what, you know, what the perspectives are of the people you're working with to build something, but also the people you're building it for, because uh, there can be a huge disconnect. And I find that a lot within education, you know, the people like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to build this course and this is what I want out of it. Well, is that what your people signed up for? You know, and, and, and there are so many times that I find a description does not even close to match what actually happens in the class. And so I'm like, you know, and what happened in the class is great. We need to change the description if that's really what you want to teach, you know, or, hey, if this is not what you're supposed to be teaching, let's try to rearrange what you're actually teaching. Because, you know, it's kind of like when you, if you want to go to the movies and you see this new, you know, see this title, like, um, I don't know, let's say, uh, let's say, you know, Guns and Roses. I don't know. Let's say there's a title of a movie, Guns and Roses, and you think, oh man, it's got to be about the band. And it's about like 
you know, somebody planting roses and, you know, then like the other part is on hunting or something like that. And it's like, whoa, this is not what I, the movie that I was coming in for, you I know, th think about that, that you're like, holy smokes. And so when you go in to take a training or when you go into a meeting, I mean, how many times have we been in a meeting that you're like, this is not what I thought the meeting was going to be about. And, and so it's kind of setting those expectations of, you know, this, these are our goals from this, and this is where we want to get, um, you know, and so that, that can transfer into so many different things, you know, whether it's an informational interview while you're networking, you know, trying to be uh, pretty explicit on, I want to learn about your job, and I want to also learn about your past. And so when you go into that informational interview, you don't want to necessarily ask them, like, what should I be doing? No, you ask them, I want to learn about your job. So, so it's kind of understanding, like, sticking to any expectation that you're setting and setting those clear expectations. So whether it's, you know, when you're working on a project, like, hey, this is what I can bring to the table and this is what I'm capable of. Um, you know, whether it's that informational interview, I want to learn about your company and actually asking about their company. You know, whether it's training, you know, you want to build a training on safety. Well, let's not make it on quality because we wanted to make it about safety. So really setting those expectations and sticking to them, it, it also helps build trust with other people. Like, I know what you're capable of. And I know, like, I know that if I ask you to do something and you say you can do it, I know that you can because we've built this, you know, like you've always set these expectations. You've always followed through with those expectations. You always bring us back to that, you know, to the focus. And so when you kind of set those, set those tones and stick to it, it, which is hard to do sometimes within a meeting or anything like that, but especially if you're leading a meeting, if you don't bring people back to really what the goals are, then, you know, people, they start, you know, subconsciously not judging you in a way, but like, I can't count on that person to stick to the task because they can't even lead the meeting and, you know, bring everybody back. So, you know, I think that that plays a huge role. One thing that my mentor had told me, he said, you know, don't commit too much at the very beginning, you know, because you want to have those wins first. You want people to know you can do your job because then a year from now, if something falls through the cracks or if you mess up, they know that you aren't a mess up. Like you don't mess up all the time. It's just like, you know, you're human and, you know, they know that you're capable of making those wins, but you don't want to take on too much too fast because then if you don't have any wins, then that becomes a performance issue. And that was a huge piece of advice that I have kept near and dear to my heart from my mentor. And, and that's another thing that I want to kind of plug is get yourself a mentor, you know, um, whether, whether you assign them and, and mine came naturally through networking. There's one person who I found his advice to be incredibly valuable. He's in the training world. And I said, Hey, can we meet like, you know, maybe monthly, maybe quarterly. I just want to, I want to keep in touch. I want to, you know, walk you through my career path. I want to get your advice. And, and I asked him and he said, yeah, like this, that's great. I would love to, you know, so I, it kind of came organically through my natural networking, but, um, you know, being able to rely on him and especially because he's an outsider in, you know, he's kind of looking at this 
at the 20,000 foot level and I'm in the weeds. And so when I'm in the weeds, I need somebody who's out there saying like, oh, think about this. Because I went to him saying, I'm on so many projects and this is really cool. He's like, take a breath. Don't commit to too much, you know? And that was huge for me. I needed to hear it and I appreciated that. And it was from somebody I trusted um, to be able to give me quality advice. So I know I kind of like rambled with that. I I kind of went all over the place. I I think people are going to extract a ton of valuable things, including the idea there are so many areas of our lives that we compartmentalize when they're comparable parallels, right? If we're exercising, maybe we have an accountability partner. Why wouldn't we do the same thing in our career life when we talk about physicals and the sort of the stigmas of mental health? If we get an annual checkup for our heart rate, why wouldn't we get an annual checkup for our mental stability and emotional exactly. uh, sort of competence rate? So, yeah. so we have a lot, of, a lot of comparable parallels that you're drawing. One of the things that you hit on that I, I say a little bit differently, it depends, context is key. You're, you're understanding your environment and making sure through those clarifying questions, through that period of observation, that you're actually understanding your stakeholders so that you can mm-hmm. effectively not only set goals, because maybe the goals aren't related. As you mentioned, sometimes maybe the training definition needs to be changed, not the training. Mm-hmm. The training's helpful. It helps people perform their jobs capably, but the description is off, which creates a misalignment or, or a sort of dissonance that is uh, unappreciable and, and undermines trust. I mean, trust is a very broad term that you use that, again, has a lot of value, a, a lot of pragmatic value. As I talk about ethics in my classes and I tell them, hey, definitionally, perhaps these are ethics and morality are the same thing per Merriam-Webster. Merriam-Webster aren't suing anybody. There is a difference between morality and (laughs) ethics in the legal world. And I want to teach you what's going to keep you out of jail and what will keep you from getting fined. Or if you get fined, it's a fine that's worth the profits that you made. Uh, So uh, so there's that understanding. But you, you touched on stakeholder expectations. You touched on this underlying idea, the intake meetings, right? I started to use a discussion board format where I allow the students to introduce themselves so that I can better manage not only their expectations, but better communicate because there mm-hmm. are a lot of assumptions and a lot of sort of misalignments or disconnects in lexicon, how people use certain terminology or acronyms in one area that means something completely different or are unknown in another. And mm-hmm. so you're not able to effectively communicate and therefore you're unable to at least optimally, maybe you meet the good enough standard, but for me, good enough isn't. So mm-hmm. you're not, you're never meeting optimal because you haven't communicated properly or you have existing assumptions. And, and one of the assumptions that I ran into is not managing expectations on the front end where there was an assumption on my part that, hey, if I'm teaching the class, I know more than you, at least about this niche area, uh, or at least there's something that I can teach you. Maybe there's certain areas where particularly with many of our students who are returning to the classroom after years of work, mm-hmm. maybe you have managed a $2 billion contract compared to the billion dollars of contracts that I administered. But there's a certain area that because of my education, I know better than you. And so that was an assumption that people would just know that there was a purpose or intentionality to my development of exercises or assessments. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that was missed. What are yeah. we doing? Um, and not understanding, which, which I'm sure you can touch on as well, not, underst- not appreciating, I understood it, but not appreciating that I wasn't the, the universe, particularly of students, where maybe they had other professors who did assign busy work, or maybe they had other professors who did communicate a certain way because of condescension, not because of the teachable moment. And so mm-hmm. I was not only competing with their assumptions about me, but I was competing with their pre-existing notions about education, about uh, 
professor's mentalities or arrogance or, or lack of purpose, right? I was competing with a number of uh, sort of assumptions and I needed to manage those expectations. Intake meetings, as you mentioned them, I sort of completed that, I, th I think in a, in a way through discussion board introductions. Mm -hmm. uh, and that mm -hmm. was something I, I, I added, but also regular updates, right? Not, not just uh, in the same way as a mentor, slightly different, but still regularly communicating what was expected, regularly communicating why the why that and I and I teach students that this is the most important thing and then I would fail to address it myself because there was an assumption that I'm in a position of power and of course my answer is right and, and rather I would get more buy-in more trust and then increase morale those those intangible and, and but still measurable sort of benefits if I just managed expectations so I think I think all of what you said is, is so relevant uh, to particularly future supervisors and and people who are managing people or or projects um, mm -hmm. in, in that sense too, though, are there any other thoughts you have on distinctions? Are there things where you say you might do this with a middle schooler, but you'd never do it with a, uh, with an employee or, or are there things where you say, I might do this in a meeting, but I'd never do this in, um, in an actual project. Or, I mean, are there any things where you, you said over time, this is completely different in this arena than that arena? You know, that's a really good question. I would have to say, you know, especially, uh, I, I feel that I one thing that I always notice is the fact of, um, you know, if you're new to a company, right? So you could be in the job in that career for 25 years, but you're new to the company, right? And I always notice that for myself, I mean, when I had been teaching for, you know, at that point I had been teaching for like four years or something like that. And I moved to a new school and it was like, I was a first year teacher all over again, right? And so one thing that I notice is that even if somebody has incredible experience, whenever you're going into a meeting, um, and or, you know, a project or starting the new school, you know, a new semester with new students or something like that is for is not forgetting that even though they have all this experience, they're still new to the situation. And that's something that I have noticed a big difference. I can't just assume that people understand the acronyms, like how you had mentioned the acronyms that I'm throwing out, because even though they're acronyms specific to our company, they're new. They haven't they haven't learned the acronyms yet, or you know, especially like right now I'm I work for can manufacturing right so all of those. Um, whenever you get a sparkle water or something like that you you know like that there's a lot that goes into making that can and there's certain vocabulary around it. That you know when you're when you've been with the company for a while i've been with the company for six plus seven months I I can throw that around now I know it. But when I'm on a project with somebody who's brand new, that they've been they've been with you know in the can industry for 25 years, but they're new to this company, and I start throwing around stuff like, oh, what's that? What's you know? And and so it's kind of like one of those you can't always assume that everybody is right at your level, even if they have way more experience than you do. So yeah, I've been in you know in corporate training for three years. I've been in you know any kind of teaching for 13. But and so somebody who's got, you know, 25 years of experience is way more than me, but there's certain things that I can't just assume. 
And so, and, and I would say it's sometimes similar to, um, well, I guess like that's where some things are a little bit different when you're teaching in university or teaching middle schoolers or high schoolers. They, they don't have all that experience. So, so when you're walking into that room, you don't just assume like, oh, they know way more than I do. Like they don't. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so, but I will say university, it might be a little bit different because some people are in the workforce for a while and then come back to school or, you know, want to get that advanced degree or anything like that. So they might have some of that experience, but when it comes to the lingo of your institution, you've got to clarify that because you don't know. You don't know whether they know that or not. And it's and, and trying to figure out a way to not make it condescending because when you're working with adults who, you know, again, have 25 years experience and you have 13, you know, just to say like, am I making sense to you? Like, are, um, am, are, are you familiar with this vocabulary since, you know, you've been with the company for six weeks? So uh, sometimes I'll, I'll ask that as I'm rattling some things off because you might have some folks who you're talking with who will speak up and say, I'm sorry, what's FCO? What does that mean? And then you have some who are just going to be quiet and like, I mean, I, I, in all honesty, I was that person. I would write FCO, search it, question mark, like when I was in a meeting, you know, and I'd find it out on my own because I didn't want to interrupt and ask. But, you know, but it's, it's some of those things that I've noticed, like, oh, I'm going to do that differently because I was that person when I first started out. And now I'm seeing that I'm the other person who sometimes just assumes. And so I have some like sticky notes sometimes when I'm in a meeting, like, don't forget to ask, like, am I make you know, am I using, um, is the vocabulary that I'm using making sense? Is there anything that needs clarification since, you know, we've got some folks who are new and, and I will say that's a struggle too, is when you have somebody on a call that they've been with the company for 20 years and another person who's been with the company for six weeks and trying to, you know, kind of bring in that, that piece. Sometimes I might even say like, oh, you know, so-and-so you've been with the company forever. What were some of those, you know, key things that you had forgotten, you know, that you, that you learned and wrote down when you were first with Ball? I know for me, it was this, this, and this, you know, some of the typical vocabulary. And so sometimes I try to do that to make that new person to the company feel comfortable asking those questions. But, um, but, you know, I think the, the biggest piece is that assumption. I can't assume that just because you have way more experience than I do, that you know what I'm talking about. Um, and, and in all honesty, not only with a new company, but just within my industry, because I'm almost like a consultant, even though I work, you know, like my customers are my colleagues. Um, and the problem is, is that they don't know that teaching background. And so when I ask some questions, they're totally thrown off because they don't know how to think that way. Um, however, sometimes I forget to ask those questions and I'm already there in my brain and I haven't brought them with me, <laughs> you know? And so I, cause they're like, oh, what? I'm, I'm really sorry. I don't know how to answer that question. I'm like, Okay, let me, let me take you back a couple of sentences so that way I can get you to where I am because there are some things that I just forget that it doesn't come naturally to people. It comes naturally to me who, to ask who the audience of the training should be, um, you know, or what the objectives of the trainings are and what objective actually means, you know, to somebody who's an engineer, they, you know, they understand what an objective is. I'm not saying that, but like when it comes to training, they might not understand it in that context. And so it's certain things that, again, I have to, I have to set myself back that even though they have all this experience and I would assume they know, 
They don't know exactly where I'm coming from, from the training perspective to build that training. And that's going to be something very different with working with adults than I did when I was working with high schoolers, you know, because yeah, of course they have some background knowledge, but I mean, you know, I did a lot of teaching, not just of math, but just of like being a human, um, you know, because they just weren't there yet. And so, so it is, it's a little bit different because I don't feel like I have to teach the people in my project meetings, you know, how to be a human. Um, but I, which I did when I taught high school, I'm like, you know, yeah, you want to, you want to consider, you know, writing that thank you note to, to your aunt who gave you that birthday present, or, you know, you might want to consider like not, you know, fixing your face, you know, and not, you know, being, you know, maybe have a poker face when, when, you know, somebody walks in with something that you think that they should not be wearing, you know, especially when I was teaching high schoolers, that was hard sometimes. They didn't have the best poker face, you know, so it was like things like that, that I was just teaching them people skills, um, which I don't have to do with adults usually. I mean, sometimes I might say like, okay, let's, let's take it back a notch, but, um, you know, but I don't, you know, there, there, that's where there's some differences and, that, and that's where the brain, you know, the psychology comes in, you know, where their brain development is and, and all of that. So that's different when they are younger versus working with adults. So the brain development's different, but some of the assumptions are also different. So those are, those are I think, two big key things of the differences between, you know, wh who I worked with when I was teaching versus who I'm working with now in the corporate environment. I think, I think those are great points as well in, in the sense that we, all, but at the end of this, it still seems like communication, effective communication is still just a key component of any success, uh, successful endeavor or, or successful career. And, and I picked up on a few words that you've used over the, over our conversation. You, you like to use feel. I'm more of a, a I think um, you use explicit. I'm more of an express person, maybe because I teach ethics. I try not to do anything explicit because it undermines my credibility as an ethics professor, not sure. like anything else in my life does. Right. Cause I'm, <laughs> I'm basically like a priest, um, <laughs> you know, and, and then you said sparkle water. And I thought how uh, funny, because of course, as a Midwesterner, Right, you'll have like soda and pop. And here in Texas, everything is Coke, right? And so you order a Coke sure. and someone brings you a Coke and you're like, actually, I meant Coke like Sprite or yeah. I meant Coke like Dr. Pepper. Uh, everything is Coke. Everything is Kleenex. Everything is Xerox, right? And so there, there's a legal sort of story behind using those terms as, as universal. But there, those understanding those terms and understanding phrasing, right? Uh, asking people, um, does that make sense? Or, or even maybe more neutrally, uh, the phrase you used earlier, are you familiar with this? as opposed to saying, do you get it? Or do you mm -hmm. understand? Maybe maybe some of those terms could be taken condescendingly or, or phrases as opposed to something more neutral. And so making sure that you're even phrasing, I, and I, when I'm judging moot court and mock trials, I try to remind students about that where some of those routine phrases we use could be misinterpreted or taken as an affront as opposed to for their intended purpose. So that language, the importance of language, importance of phrasing, mm -hmm. All those things that you're you're highlighting, I think, are essential. And and one of the reasons in contracts that we start with definitions is to ensure that we're all on the same page. Because a sweater to you might or might not include a cardigan. Uh, mm -hmm. so, yeah. And and when you're developing a scope of work, many times if you don't ask people those clarifying questions, they don't understand what their needs are. They see a commercial for a Big Mac, they really want a Big Mac, and so when they're catering their event in India, they they say we're all going to have Big Macs because that's the hot new thing. And you say maybe we should rethink the Big Mac if we're doing a conference in India, you know, and, and you say, man, mm -hmm. that, you know, the BLT is the most popular sandwich in the United States. We've done our polling. We're going to do this conference in Jerusalem. Uh, we're going to do an Arab-Israeli summit. 
and, and we're going to have BLTs. And you say, maybe we should rethink this. Maybe the consumer data context is key. It depends. Context is key. And maybe the consumer data isn't exactly applicable to this context or this situation. And so mm -hmm. taking the time to understand that, I think, are points that you've highlighted uh, throughout our discussion. But I, I know you have things to do. Are there any closing thoughts you, you, you want to offer us? And again, I, I look forward to talking with you again on, on these subjects, even before I, I visit y'all and, and don't snow ski or participate in any of those active <laughs> things that y'all do. I'll, I'll sip some scotch on the side and watch you all exert yourselves. There we go. We could go to we could go to the Mexican restaurant right, right by us again. Right. <laughs> enjoy the lake view so that, yeah, we could definitely do that. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing, and you and you really touched on it, was that that communication piece. And I know that I haven't, I've inadvertently kind of talked about the communication, and and I think that that truly is key because, uh, and what you said about the kind of that judgmental. Instead of saying, you know, why did you do this, you could say, help me understand your thought process behind it. Uh, because why did you do this sounds judgmental. And so trying, because people get defensive real quick if if it sounds judgmental when you ask a question um, or if it sounds condescending. So it is, you know, trying to be very careful about the questions that you ask, how you ask them, the wording that you use. And I am in no way, shape, or form the best communicator. I have been taking a lot of LinkedIn learning classes to, to become better at communicating because I am working with a diverse you know, group of people. And anytime you're working with anybody, you know, communication truly is key because things get lost in translation. Things get, um, you know, and, and like you said, the vocabulary, I use sparkle water because I don't even drink regular soda. I drink like laquas. And so that's why I call them sparkle water, you know? And so it's things like that, just understanding some of the vocabulary. And, and I think too, being willing to stop somebody and say, can you explain that for me? That is something that I am trying to work on so much. Like I said, I was at one in the meeting, like FCO, search it. You know, I, I didn't want to seem like I'm stupid and I don't know, but like, it's, it's, I'm not stupid. I just don't know because they're using stuff that I'm not familiar with yet. And so being willing to just say, hey, can you clarify that for me? Or can you go further? And, um, and then the one final piece is being willing to receive feedback always asking for feedback. A lot of times I say, you know, if I let a meeting, I might ask somebody afterwards, like, hey, how'd you think that meeting went? Um, and, and so I don't always just say like effective on me, like, did I lead the meeting? Okay. Did I, you know, overstep? Did I not ask enough questions? I just say, how did it go? What, what are your thoughts on it? Um, sometimes I ask for, you know, specific feedback. I'll say, you know, how, how can I improve the next time I lead a meeting? So sometimes I might ask more specifically, but I am always open to feedback, even if it's stuff that I don't like, because that's what's going to make me a better person, a better person leading meetings, a better communicator, a better employee, um, better within my career, allow me to move forward with my career. You know, if I'm not open to feedback and applying the feedback that, you know, I'm given, I'm not going to be able to move forward really within just life in general, you know, I'd be stuck in my ways. And, and so I think being open to communication and feedback is really, you know, a lot of good steps forward to, to improve life, to improve career. Um, and just to, yeah, just to be able to rock and roll and keep moving on. I like that technique though, too, where you've got open-ended feedback options, but also focus feedback more directed towards 
expected areas of improvement or, or possibly affirmation. Maybe you did it mm -hmm. perfectly, but those focused and open-ended, okay, here are the survey questions. Now, anything else you'd like to add um, to, to do that? And, and then you've highlighted the vulnerability that we started the conversation with, with the, the seeking out mentors and networking. So some of that vulnerability to possibly negative feedback so that you can better improve yourself. I, I have to remind my students sometimes, just because someone says it doesn't mean you have to do it. Um, yeah, so exactly. It. <laughs> if you choose to apply it, this is America. You can yeah. do it or not do it. Um, and, and, and I love that. And of course, you know, with the acronyms, I, I still go back to the time that somebody asked me about, you know, if I was familiar with Edgar and I thought about all the Edgars I knew and it turns out it was a new uh, state statute relating to education. I was like, oh, well, that, oh, Edgar. <laughs> Yeah, we go way back. We were me, him, and Norm are sitting in Boston at the Cheers bar, and oh, oh, it's a law, it's a statute. Okay, so so definitely, no, that makes sense. Well, I appreciate your time, Katie. Yeah, Anos of Siddeley Gerwitz. You know, I appreciate y'all, uh, y'all, y'all taking the time to to assist me in in this project and endeavor to provide some different perspective for students, or even some of the some similar information maybe, but presented different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, so sometimes people just hear it differently from different people and using different vernacular. So that yep, you know I appreciate it. you and your your unique lexicon and your unique perspectives uh, adding value to the discussions that we're having. So I appreciate you. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Dietrich. I appreciate you inviting me on. It's always a good time. It's a good time. It's always good seeing you and hearing your voice too. You know, we go way back and uh, I enjoy this and look forward to assisting you another time. We can always continue the conversation. Thank you, Katie. You have a great one. All right, you too.